Good morning. This morning's sermon text comes from Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's the word of the Lord. Good morning, it's great to be here. My name is Aaron Bierke. I'm one of the assistant pastors at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And it's always great to come to uh, Grace Pres and to see uh, some familiar faces, uh, the Middlecoffs. They're um, fantastic hosts, that's, that's an understatement. And I had a, a great time last night. They told me there would be a lot of people, uh, but I wasn't expecting to see over 100 in their house. So that was phenomenal. And it's great just uh, this morning to see a lot of familiar faces from uh, last night, so it's a great way just to you know get acclimated to your to your community. So this morning we're in Matthew two, and what I just read is often thought to be a Christmas passage, but it's actually not. It's actually a passage. If we look closely, is looking at the time after Jesus's birth, and so if Christmas is the birth of Jesus, then what we see in this in Matthew two is actually the time just after Jesus's birth. And we're in January, about a month after we celebrated Christmas, so we're kind of in that, in that season. Although biblical scholars uh, understand that the wise men or the magi, when they came to see Jesus, maybe happened up to two years after the birth. So, th- so it's just, it's time after Jesus' birth, but before his ministry. And so that puts us squarely in Matthew 2. And one commentator says the following about this passage. He says, Matthew 2 has the power to fascinate readers and to stay in the memory because it incorporates ever-popular and pleasing characters and motifs. The mysterious magi from the east, the star with the birth of a king, the threat to the life of an infant hero, and the warning that comes in a dream. These are the things that delight and cause us to wonder. And so our passage is an incredible, unforgettable passage for all those reasons mentioned. But the heart of our passage is what these details support. And essentially, our passage is about the birth of Jesus going public. And it goes public in a very major way. See, up to this point in the, in the gospel narratives, 
Uh, Jesus' birth is relatively unknown. Uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, tells us that some shepherds knew about the birth of Jesus. But back in, in those days, uh, shepherds were considered to be some of the lowest classes of citizens. And so although there's some theological significance to that, in terms of socially or public awareness, uh, there's very little significance there. But everything changes in Matthew 2. And if we, listen, if we listen closely to our text, what we're going to see is that this passage isn't so much about the birth of Jesus. As I mentioned before, it's verse 1 just kind of mentions, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so that, that's kind of it. See, this passage is actually about the responses in light of the birth of Jesus. This is a passage about response. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is look at three responses that are found in Matthew 2. Uh, first, the, the Magi, their response, or the wise men. Second, the response of Herod. And lastly, the response of Matthew, the author. Okay, so three responses. The response of the Magi, the response of King Herod, and the response of Matthew, the author. Now, first, the response of the Magi. Their response hits us right away in verses 1 and 2. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then in verses 10 and 11, it says, When they, the, the Magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So simply stated, the, the Magi's response to the birth of Jesus was worship. In incredible worship. And verse, verse 10 literally reads, they rejoiced with great joy exceedingly. Okay, so that's a, that's a lot of joy. And so the, the text, when we look at the Magi, we might ask the first question, well, who are these Magi? That gives us a, hopefully it gives us an understanding about what to think about their response. Well, the text says that the Magi came east of Jerusalem, which means they possibly came from uh, Persia or Arabia, possibly Babylon. There's some, there's some good thinking in Babylon. The, the idea goes, 6th um, century B.C., Israel was exiled to Babylon, and they were called by the prophet Jeremiah to put roots down into that community, to marry, to have kids, to build houses, to plant gardens, to, to be permanent, to love that city. And then, decades later, when they were called out back to Israel, not everybody left. So there's some people that stayed there. And so there, it's understood there's a local community of, of Jews in Babylon. And so the, so the idea goes, well, why would these foreign magi be interested or even know of a Jewish king, well, maybe they were dialoguing with the, with the local Jewish community. So, so that's, a, that's a thought of my, why they might be from Babylon. But whether they're from Babylon or not, the significance of the Magi is not so much where they're from, as, as interesting as that is, but rather it's in what they represent. See, the Magi represent the spiritual elite of the Gentile world at that time. The wise men, the Magi, represent the spiritual elite of the Gentile world at that time. And we know historically that they were astrologers, and they were from a priestly pagan caste, and therefore in their context, they were, they were scholars with regards to wisdom and knowledge. Okay, they, they've been around the spiritual block a time or two, you might say. And we know historically that nations and kings would, would come to these magi uh, with questions, because the magi were operating on a different level than everybody else. Okay, so that the magi, were, they were a big deal. And yet something, something happened to these spiritual elites that caused them to push their, their work aside and do everything they could to find this, this, this new king. 
And what is probably the most, one of the most astonishing moments in all of the Bible, verses 10 and 11, what we have is these Gentile spiritual elites, upon finding this little child-born king, could do nothing but fall at his feet, prostrate in worship with exceeding joy. That, that's incredible. That, that's, that's theologically shocking. That's historically shocking. So what can we learn from, from their response? Well, what, what, we, what we need to see is that these spiritual elites were worshiping this, this little-born king of the Jews, this little child, before Jesus had ever done anything as incarnate God here on earth. They were worshiping Jesus with exceeding joy, and he had not done a miracle. He had not healed anybody. He certainly had not resurrected yet. He had not done a thing. And yet, they worshipped him with exceeding joy. We might say, more pointedly, their, their worship, their, their context of worship, was not conditional to what Jesus could do for them. And so that begs a question for us, that raises a question. What is the context of our own worship? Is your context of worship a conditional worship of God? God, I'll worship you, but... That's what this text is calling us to, to reflect on. What is our worship? God will worship you, but only if you do this or that for me. See, I, I see this sort of this posture of conditional worship all the time in my own life. I see it a lot in the lives of others. And, and the problem with this conditional worship is that it always produces spiritually weak men and women. It always produces spiritually weak men and women. Because conditional worship means that your worship is tied to your externals. It's tied to your, tied to your context. At your situation, because our situation is always changing from bad to good and good to bad, and if our worship is tied to the, 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 the situations that we experience, that means that our worship is going to be inconsistent at best, or, or maybe even non-existent at worst. And it's impossible to have a, a spiritual depth or maturity if, if your worship is inconsistent, if your worship is of a conditional worship. I remember the first time I... The first few years, I was attending Redeemer back in uh, 2005, and we would sing a song from time to time. Not, it's not a very famous song. I don't know if anyone's heard of it. Just, we only sang it a handful of times, but I'll never forget it. The song was called, My Goal is God Himself. And that first verse of that song will never leave me because it describes so often what my heart is not. And so let me just read the first verse uh, for you guys in case you're not familiar with it. It goes, My goal is God Himself. Not joy, nor peace, nor even blessings, but himself my God. Tis his to lead me there, not mine but his, at any cost, dear Lord, by any road. I'm just going to read that first line again. My goal is God himself, not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but himself my God. See, that verse has never left me because it describes so often what my heart is not. See, conditional worship can't sing that song. Conditional worship song... Sounds something like, my goal is joy, my goal is peace, my goal is blessings, and the way I get those things is, is through God. God's the vehicle that gets me those things. See, that's a very different song than my goal is God himself, a very different song. Uh, conditional worship is worshiping God for what he gives you, not, not worshiping God for who he is. Another way to maybe sing this song of conditional worship, to flesh it out a little bit, might be something like this. My goal is, uh, is to have a high-paying job. 
Or my goal is to have a high, powerful job. Or my goal is to get married. My goal is to have kids. My goal is to see my kids do really, really well. My goal is uh, good health. And the problem with all that, if that is your goal, if that's your song, is that all those things are really, really good. I mean, there's nothing wrong uh, wanting to have a high-paying job that pays well, or there's nothing wrong with um, you know, wanting to get married or wanting to see your kids succeed or good health. No way. That's, those are all good things. But they're horrible things to base your worship of God on. Because none of those things are promised for us, and if you happen to get a few of those things in life, it's, none of it's guaranteed that it'll last forever. In fact, it's guaranteed that it, that it won't last forever. Those are great things, but they're horrible things to base your worship of God on. And see, if, uh, if we want to learn to, to, to kind of kick against our conditional worship, it means that you and I need to try and sing that first verse of that song every single day because our hearts are always so prone to that kind of conditional worship. And it's by striving to sing that song that we will know, we'll begin to know what it is to have a, a spiritual depth or a, or a maturity. Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, says the following. He writes, The situations in which we find ourselves are never as important as our responses to them, which come from our spiritual side. A carefully cultivated heart will, assisted by the grace of God, foresee, forestall, or transform most of the painful situations before which others stand like helpless children, saying, Why? The greatest need you and I have and the greatest need of collective humanity is the renovation of our hearts. You know, what's Willard saying? That's a really, it's a dense quote. What he's saying is that, look, all of us, if we haven't already, will experience difficult seasons in life. We're all going to experience that. But it's our responses during those seasons. It's our worship of God during difficult times that ultimately truly reflects what's actually in our hearts. It's not when things are going well, but when things are difficult, that ultimately truly reflects what's in our heart based on our response to God. And a conditional worship of God that says, well, I'll worship you, but, is absolutely paralyzed during difficult times. Because it doesn't know how to worship God during difficult times. Because conditional worship is, is connected to your situations. And therefore, because your situation always changes from bad to good and good to bad, that means your worship is going to be inconsistent at best when it's a conditional worship. Or we can look at it this way. You know, you know what conditional worship can't weather? Conditional worship has no idea what to do with cancer or chronic illness. It's just paralyzed in fear. It has no idea what to do with those things. Or another thing that conditional worship can't weather is a loss of a loved one, either a parent or a spouse, or, or even worse, your, your child. Conditional worship has no idea what to do at a funeral. It just stands paralyzed in fear. Or conditional worship has no idea what to do uh, if you lose your job. Has no clue what to do when you, when you lose your job. Conditional worship just stands there in fear. Now, everything I just mentioned, it's only three examples, is not uncommon to humanity. Those, those are all pretty common things. It's, that's it's part of the stuff that makes up life. And therefore, we might say, that conditional worship can't stand up to life itself. Its roots are too shallow. Its, its roots aren't deep enough. So, the Magi's response, it's asking us, do you have a conditional worship? Is that the posture of your own heart? It's calling us to that task. And it's calling us to see what true worship is. 
And true worship is worshiping God for himself, for, for he and he alone. That, that's, that's, a tr- that's true worship. But now secondly, the, the response of Herod. Now, Herod's response couldn't be any different than the Magi. It's worth noting that in 40 BC, the Roman Senate elected Herod to be the, the, the king of the Jews. And not everybody in Israel is happy about that. Now, he was gifted politically. Uh, history shows that even his opponents gave him a lot of credit. He was a really good administrator, but he ruled with an iron hand. He, he ruled with, by heavily taxing his own people. But he was, he was wise enough to know how to stay in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. So he was, he was, har- he was a harsh leader, but he was a very wise leader politically. But despite all of that, he loved power. History shows he loved power. And that love for power created in him uh, an anxiety or a fear or a jealousy. And we know historically, historically that he assassinated many of his associates. He even assassinated his own wife. And we know at least two of his sons he was, were killed by him. So although he was gifted politically and he was a very savvy ruler, he, was, he, was a very, uh, he loved power and he was a very uh, fearful ruler. He was very violent. He was a very angry ruler. So in light of that, now we jump into Herod's response. And we see it in verse 3. Matthew writes, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Now this word troubled means an anxiety of the soul. Herod wasn't just disturbed or kind of annoyed or frustrated. He was deeply distressed in his inner being. Okay, the very thing that caused his own identity, that's what was being shaken. And this phrase, all of Jerusalem, doesn't mean every single person in Jerusalem was troubled with Herod, but rather the scholars say that that phrase, all of Jerusalem, points to the idea that Jerusalem was the power hub of Israel. And it referred to those in power. So verse 3 might read, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of those in power with him. So on one side of the spectrum, you have the magi upon News of this king are led to great joy. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have Herod and his associates. Upon news of this king are led to, is led to great fear. Okay, so very two different responses. Now, um, Matthew shows Herod's response by contrasting the two responses. And as you look at how these two responses differ, you begin to see Herod's response. So let's just look at a couple of ways that Matthew subtly shows the difference of these two responses. The first way is in verses 1 to 4. It's subtle, but notice that it's the foreign Gentile wise men that come to Jerusalem, Israel's power hub, with news of the king of the Jews, while the Israel wise men know nothing about this king. It's kind of awkward. It's, it's a little theologically jarring. Now keep in mind that this is a shame and honor culture. And therefore, it's, uh, to be embarrassed is worse than to commit suicide. To be embarrassed is this horrible thing. Can you imagine how much space was lost with these, uh, the wise men of Israel upon uh, these wise men from the Gentile world saying, hey, so what's this news about your king? Oh, wait, wait a minute, what? Okay, so that's, that's an awkward theological moment right there that Matthew just subtly brings out. The second way that Matthew brings out the, the contrast of these two responses is with Herod himself. I mean, imagine that you have these Gentile wise men who are the spiritual elite. Right? Kings and nations come to them, so they're, they're a big deal. They come to Herod, and they say, Hey, Mr. King of the Jews, can you tell us about the real King of the Jews that's been born? I mean, that's, that's, not, a, a, that's not a great first impression. 
And especially in light of the fact that Herod was a violent man, that we know that he's an angry man, that, he's, that he acts in fear. Uh, I can only imagine upon being embarrassed. No, no wonder he was deeply troubled. because He was deeply embarrassed. Right? And, and lastly, it's, it's look at the actions, the response of these two parties. See, the news of this king causes to the wise men action, the seeking. And um, their action leads to great joy as they find this new child. Okay? It leads to life. But the news of this king for Herod and his associates leads to inaction. They don't seek. And instead of leading to life and and joy, it leads to greater fear. And eventually, Matthew 2, um, we we learn that it leads to to great death. So these responses couldn't be any different. But now, what can we learn from Herod? What what can we take from his response? Well, we, we do owe Herod something. Because it is through Herod's response that we learn of the weight and the impact of the nature of Christmas. It's through Herod's response that we learn that our sentimentality of Christmas misses just how confrontational the incarnation actually is. See, in Jesus being born meant that there was an explosion into this time and space. And that means that he confronted his birth means that it confronts every aspect of, of who you and I are. Confronts to the very depths of our being. Whether we're ready for it or not, the incarnation just happens. And we see that it's, a, it's quite confrontational. It's a confrontation of lordship. And that's what we learn from Herod, his response. The incarnation is a confrontation of lordship. But a confrontation of lordship is always a confrontation of power. And so what we learn in Herod's response is that the Christmas message is confronting you and me, telling us that we are not number one. And that is the last thing our hearts are wired to hear. The incarnation confronts us that we are not number one, and and that's the last thing that that we're ready to hear. See, for Herod, this confrontation of power was a political confrontation. It meant for him that he was literally not the king of the Jews, and that that was dangerous. But make... No doubt about it, even for us, the confronta- this confrontation is a political, of, of political nature. See, the, the incarnation confronts us as a society. It's confront- it, con- it critiques us, it judges us as a society when we're not um, living with justice, when we are ruling with fear and, and, and power over others. It confronts us as a society when money dictates terms and how things should go rather than love for neighbor. Okay, and that has huge political implications. The incarnation is a confrontation to us politically, but it's also a confrontation to our inner being. See, it, the, the, the message of the incarnation says that Jesus is the better and actually proper Lord in your life. Right? The, the incarnation says that Jesus is the better and proper Lord in your life, and you aren't, and I'm not, and that's incredibly offensive if you think about it, right? Especially if for those of us who are unwilling to wrestle with issues of power and lordship in our own lives. And I think that's everybody. That's, that's not a fun thing to wrestle with. But see, if we're really going to understand the depth of Herod's response in our lives, that means we, we have to be willing to wrestle with the issue of power and the issue of lordship because that means we will wrestle with the issue of fear. And the same fear that caused Herod to react the way he did is the same fear that's in you and it's in the same fear that's in me when we realize just how confrontational Jesus is to the, our own lordship in our own lives. 
And see, Herod shows us that if we, if, we, if we are the Lord of our own lives, that means our lives are being shaped and guided by fear, anxiety, anger, rage, um, jealousy, envy. That's what the lordship of our life looks like. And, and we get to see it with just a little bit of reflection. It only takes a little bit of self-reflection to see that's the fruit of your own lordship. And for example, um, if just the smallest bit of, bit of criticism destroys you or puts you like immediately on the defense, that's a glimpse of your lordship. That's, that's, that's the fruit of your lordship coming out. You want to know what it is to, to rule your own life, to be your own lord? Well, when some criticism hits you and it destroys you, it's a, that's a little bit of your lordship coming out. Or maybe if your love life falls apart, someone breaks up with you and it's just, oh man, if, you, if, that, if or when that happens and you are consumed with, with uh, envy or loneliness or fear, that, that's the fruit of your lordship coming out. Or, or we might see it um, if... Someone other than yourself has a moment of success and you don't. And on the outside, you're thinking, oh, hey, it's, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. But on the inside, you're just consumed with uh, jealousy, envy, maybe hatred. Well, that's, that's the fruit of your lordship. That, that's just a glimpse of what it's like for you to, to be the lord of your own life. We might say uh, it's like your little Herod coming out. Just a glimpse of your little Herod if you're lord of your own life. See, but the birth of Jesus looks at our lordship and says, no, I'm coming after that. Don't let our sentimentality of Christmas, of the incarnation, trick you, our culture's understanding of Christmas. The incarnation is just as dangerous as it is joyful because it threatens our lordship. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, makes this example really well. It's, if, if you're familiar with the story, it's when... Um, Peter and Susan and Lucy enter into Narnia and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have them over and they start to, the kids start to pick their brain, the, the beaver's brains. So who is this Aslan, the king of Narnia? And uh, this is how the conversation goes. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe then? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Oh, then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course Aslan isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. See, through Herod's response, we learn that Jesus is anything but safe. There is an air of danger about him. That your lordship and my lordship can't stand in his presence. But if we listen more closely, what we'll see is that the lordship of Jesus is like no other lordship we've ever experienced before. And although he isn't safe, we, we, we learn in this text that he's actually the very Lord that we need. And that actually leads us to our final response, Matthew's response. So in this passage, we're observing different responses. The Magi show us what true worship is. 
It's worshiping God uh, despite whatever he gives or doesn't give you. Herod shows us the, um, the, the confrontational nature of the incarnation, that Jesus is Lord and you and I are not. Matthew's response shows us Jesus' identity and why we can trust him. Now, when we look at Matthew's response, we actually have to take a step back from the details of this passage because Matthew's response is in how he tells this story of this little child born king of the Jews, and he does so by using a Gentile lens that goes through the entire book. All right, so Matthew's response is not in the details of this passage, but it's in how he tells this story of this little child born king of the Jews, and he does so, he tells this story by using a Gentile lens, and this Gentile lens is through the entire book of Matthew. And this lens starts in Matthew uh, 2 in our passage, and what we see is, is a familiar biblical moment or occurrence or a theme. And that theme or that occurrence is the interaction between wise men from the Gentile world and the wise men from Israel interacting with each other. Okay, that's, that's the theme or the incur- occurrence that we see throughout the Bible, is interaction between the Gentile wise men and the wise men from Israel. And historically, in the Bible, we see that this interaction always leads to the wise men of Israel winning out because God is with them. Okay, so it's this common interaction or this theme throughout the Bible, and the wise men of Israel always went out because God's with them. Think back to Joseph. And not necessarily a technicolor dream coat, but Joseph, well, in that, I guess, that story. And recall there, there was a season in his life that he was put in prison. And it was, while he was in prison, Pharaoh had a couple dreams that deeply disturbed him. And so Pharaoh, upon having these dreams, called his magicians and his sorcerers into his presence and said, tell me about this dream. But they had, they had no idea. And so through a series of events, Joseph is brought into the presence of Pharaoh, and through God's help, he's able to uh, tell Pharaoh what this dream means because God is with, God's with Joseph. Or think about the interactions in the book of Exodus where we have Moses and his brother Aaron interacting or coming up against uh, Pharaoh's sorcerers and magicians or, or interacting with them, coming up against them. And through a series of interactions, Moses and Aaron win out because God's with them. They're, they're more powerful. And so Pharaoh has no choice but to concede to Moses and Aaron and to their God and let, let his people go free. Let, let Moses' people go free. Or you think about Elijah and his interactions with the pagan priests. Or you might think about Daniel and the book of Daniel as his interactions with the sorcerers of, uh, from King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Or when Nebuchadnezzar's son becomes king, Daniel again interacts with those sorcerers. And time and time again, Daniel wins out because God's with him. So it's this common biblical theme throughout the entire Bible. And now we, Matthew brings it back to us in Matthew 2. And so here we have these wise men from the Gentile world coming to Jerusalem, lacking a knowledge or an enlightenment or something that can only be found in Jerusalem. It can be only found with, uh, with the people of Israel. Now, we'll notice, obviously, that... Um, that the, the, these wise men, these magi, knew something about a sign. Right? They knew, but they didn't know what to do with this. They, they lacked an enlightenment. They, they lacked knowledge. And so that led them to ver- verse 2. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? So they needed something from Israel. And so Herod uh, gets together uh, the chief priests and the scribes or the teachers of the law. They huddle together. And Herod's like, okay, tell me about this. What's going on? And they say, oh, yeah, of course we know. The prophet says that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. We all know this. 
So um, Herod gets the wise men back in his presence secretly and says, hey, you're supposed to go to Bethlehem. And so off, off, they, off, the, the, off they go, the Magi. And up to this point, everything is going exactly as, as planned. That the wise men of Israel, in a sense, won out because they proved to have a knowledge or enlightenment that was not found outside of Israel. But after that moment, everything changes. And this common biblical occurrence, this theme is turned upside down on its head. And in a sudden unforeseen twist, what we have at the climax of this passage, Matthew shows us that it's not the wise men of Israel that ultimately draw close to God in worship and obedience, but it's these Gentiles. It's, it's shocking. And right before our eyes, we see this, this transformation of this common biblical theme that it's the Gentiles all of a sudden are able to draw close to God. Again, see, Matthew's lens is in the way that he tells the story of this little child born king of the Jews, and he tells the story through the Gentile lens throughout the entire book. And the careful reader will see in Matthew from uh, chapter 2, verses 11, on to the rest of the book, something's different. Something's changed. Something is not the way it has always gone in Israel. And what Matthew's doing is he's giving us a new storyline. And this new storyline is showing us that this new king is not just for Jews, it's not just for Israel, but it's for all people. This king, he is, he is for all people. Matthew's not done yet in Matthew 2. Matthew brings us, at the very end of Matthew, all the way to the foot of the cross. And at the cross, he gives us another Gentile. It's the Roman centurion. And it's just moments after Jesus dies on the cross the centurion looks up with great fear and he says, Surely Jesus was the Son of God. See, it's through Matthew's lens, his Gentile lens, that we learn of Jesus' identity. And we learn it from the lips of Gentiles, even though Matthew himself was a Jew. And what we learn from the lips of Gentiles is that Jesus was not only king of the Jews, but he was also the very Son of God. And what we, we also learn that we can trust him. Matthew, bringing us to the cross, shows us God's love for us. He shows us that Jesus is a servant Lord. The cross shows us that, that Jesus loves us more than we could ever know. The cross is a statement of his great love for us. And the resurrection is this historical statement that shows us that all these promises in God can be trusted. That all these promises of God are true. That's what Matthew's response shows us. Or I guess maybe another sort of seasonal way or post-seasonal way we, could, we might say all of this is in a, in a Christmas song. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. See, the, as we wrestle with these three responses in Matthew 2, there will be a response in us that's shaped by these three responses. We will see what it is to worship God for who he is, for God and God alone. We'll be challenged with our own lordship versus Jesus' lordship. But we will see that the lordship of Jesus is like no other lordship we've ever known. And although he's dangerous, Jesus... He's good. And that's the, that's the lordship that we actually need. 
And that will lead us to incredible worship and incredible joy, as what we see with the Magi. So let, let me close this in prayer. Uh, Father, thanks so much for just this reminder this morning from your word of what it is to respond to you. Uh, I thank you for these three responses and that we can um, be challenged to know what it is to um, pursue you despite any of your blessings. You give us tons of blessings, but we're challenged to worship you for who you are, not for what you give us. We're challenged and we confess that we are often uh, Lord of our own lives and we kind of like it that way, but I pray that you give us strength to reflect on what that actually means so that we come and pursue you more closely. And that is through Matthew's response, Father, that this reminder um, that we know we can trust you and that, and that you're good. Even though you're not safe, you're good. And I pray that these, uh, these truths will uh, go down into the depths of our minds this morning and the depths of our hearts uh, so that we can be changed. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.